0: Lock Talk Radio.
1: Good
2: morning and thank you us on Three Women, Three Ways, we're the show that tackles some pretty uh, significant topics when it comes to domestic violence, interpersonal violence, women's issues, although as I keep saying, my daughter informs me that there is no, thing, no such thing as a woman's issue. It's a people issue, which I agree with in theory, but in reality, it seems like that doesn't always work. And uh, today, joining me is Sean Marsh, Dr. Sean Mar- C. Marsh, he's the Chief Program Officer over of juvenile. Law at the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, and that's headquartered at the University of Nevada, Reno. And, Sean, is it okay if I call you by your first name?
0: Please do. Thank you.
2: Okay, great. Um, Sean is, uh, I I first met him uh, in Toronto at a a conference, and he gave a wonderful presentation along with a family court judge and a couple of other experts on um, how family court can change, and since we've had so many shows about uh, family court and some of the, the real horror stories that can happen in family court, I thought it might be good to talk with Sean and find out what efforts are being made to correct our family and juvenile court system in this country. Thank you for joining us, Sean.
0: Glad to be here.
2: Good. Um, that's kind of a big topic that I asked you to join us on. Do you have any immediate thoughts about my my question, <laughs> my... <laughs>
0: That's the large open-ended question. Well, I think one of the real exciting developments that we're seeing in in family courts, and and I have to apologize, I will fall in and out of different terminology. i also sometimes say juvenile courts and family courts, or juvenile and family courts. And uh, the work I do kind of crosses both domains. So uh, I apologize for that up front. But one of the real exciting things that we're seeing is a push for these courts to become more Uh, aware of the level of of victimization, of injury, of trauma, that a lot of the people that come to the court have experienced, and that there's a, a, a movement, I think, it's safe to say, to help courts become trauma-responsive, trauma-informed, become part of a healing community. And to do that, it takes a fundamental change in how we look at humans and human behavior uh, and how to best set up the environments uh, to promote healing. So I think that, that is a, that's one of the big, big pushes right now to help courts change their practice.
2: Yeah, um, are courts motivated to do that? I mean, I've talked be with surprised. several people who, I've talked with several judges, and it's like, we're fine. <laughs> What's your <laughs> problem? <course>. We're fine. <laughs> of course.
0: Well, we we liken the, the the reform work that we do with courts uh, very much like cutting grass. Uh, you, you go out and you cut grass, and man, your lawn looks really good, man shoot, I come back next week and i got to mow it again. Uh, it's very similar to, to working with courts, right? Uh, and yep. so I would say there's variance. There's variance in the motivation. We have courts that we work with, many, many courts that are highly, highly motivated to do this work and tackle these tough issues. And typically they're led by very, uh, I'll use the word progressive, uh, judges. They're forward thinking. They know we can do things better, and they work with us to Develop, implement, and test different practices. Now, your point uh, made. It there's on the other side of the coin. Sure, there are judges and there are courts that aren't as motivated, and they think they're doing just fine, and that there's no real reason to to have major change or reform.
2: Yeah, this is God's work. Leave me alone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Um, well, I think that uh, you know, what you're saying is, is certainly positive and it's certainly needed, but are you getting flack trying to present this information, trying to enact this change or enable this change?
0: Sure. There's, there's a subpopulation of folks that think that uh, you know, considering trauma and tra- being trauma-responsive and trauma-informed is just another fad. It's the, the flavor of the week and that this too shall pass. Um, uh, But I would say it's a minority of folks. And once they sit down and you have the opportunity to walk them through, for example, the session that you attended in Toronto, and just walk through the basics of how uh, trauma or adverse experiences impacts human development and behavior and and their psychological well-being, there starts to be that little bit of aha going on. And it gives folks a framework to say, uh, you know, uh, we can develop the conditions of healing. We can, we can help people. Instead of this really frustrating cycle of people coming in and they come back in and in again and in again and again, which really frustrates all court staff, not just judges, that
2: maybe if we just fundamentally... Whoops, are you there, Sean? Sean, are you there? Hello, did we lose Sean? Hello, are you there, caller? Hello. Oh boy. Hello. Yes. Hi. I'm afraid we lost Sean. Um, d- did you have a question for him?
3: Well, I was uh, listening to. I wanted to listen to his complete um, answer or thoughts. And uh, well, I'm, I'm I was just sure he'll call us. I he is. Okay.
2: Hold on. Thank I'll you. leave you on the air, caller. Sean, did we get you back?
0: I am back. I apologize. I don't know what happened there.
2: Oh, okay. Um, well, we have a caller, and I kind of momentarily went to her, but she said she'd like to hear the rest of what you have to say. So if you could remember what train of, of thought you were on before we lost you. Um, sure,
0: absolutely. I, I was just summing up the uh, that, you know, sure, that there is a, a a subpopulation of folks that think that this is a fad uh, and that it will you know change within a year and we be on to something else. But and then I was explaining if you can sit down and walk folks through the very basics of how, you know, biology changes and psychology changes when you're exposed to traumatic events, there starts to be that light bulb get off, and then the, there's not nearly as much resistance. In fact, it really gives people a lot of hope in a lot of ways uh, that we can actually do something to help these children and families.
2: Oh, wonderful. Um, I, I I hope your optimism is well-deserved. Caller, are you still with us?
3: I am. I am.
2: Hi. Um, Did you have a question for
3: Sean? Well, I... Um, I, I guess it might be a different point, but when he does mention about psychological changes and such, um, what about a dependency neglect case in which, um, it's ordered for a psychological evaluation to be performed on the both parents and under the circumstances, you know, one parent, um, under allegations, false allegations by the other, um, has actually lost her children to the other spouse. And then at the beginning of the proceedings, they're ordered to a psychological evaluation. And the outcome of that is very negative for the parent who, is in the, you know, who had the children taken from her. And it's not so negative. It's actually you know, positive or strong for the other parent. The instance, though, in my particular case is um, the evaluation came back uninterpretable. But yet that – What do you mean by that, uninterpretable? Uninterpretable. Um, I mean, I hope I'm not saying too much personal information. Um, But uh, under the circumstances being um, a stay-at-home mom, very bonded to her, very young children, one was a nursing infant, 11 months old, and all of a sudden she's thrown into this divorce arena, totally intimidating and unexpected because the father had – plan this to, to make these all these false allegations and what have you and incite concerns within the Department of Human Services to take action. Therefore, that's, you know, the psyche valve, you know, came from there. And uninterpretable is, um, well, he could not make out, basically he couldn't read the test results. My defense level was so elevated, obviously, you know, um, just I guess the way I answered the questions, um, I wish honestly this was um recorded or videotaped as far as the interview and such because he gave recommendations, um, opinions and I mean very lengthy, very concerning opinions and in, in of me. And all this was based on uninterpretable test results and he even clearly stated that but yet he goes on about these negative opinions which could not have derived from any testing um since then I had another one and I'm sorry so so based on that um how can that be used ethically or you know by the courts legally to determine like who's the better parent or um, under the circumstances, it was also noted, like like I had said, um, I was under a huge amount of distress, Having my children removed from me, being a stay-at-home mom, I didn't know what was basically going on. Um, so apparently I didn't test, you know, as if I were in an equal um, setting where, you know, it could have been maybe – parents are, I I don't know, just a different setting rather than having the children just removed from your care and being worried about the, you know. So how is that? I've
2: seen that too, Sean. I've seen where it's almost like, I always joke and say that when you go to court, the one with the most paper wins. Um, But it's almost like a lot of people, and you can go online and you can just Google information and there is a ton of information on basically how to get your children from the other parent. Um, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of judges make assumptions based on demeanor. I think a lot of judges make assumptions based on, it's almost like the first one to make the accusation is the one that's listened to. Does that make sense, and do you see that, Sean?
0: Well, at times we see that, and I think it's it's not just judges. I think it's a lot of the, the actors in the system, and actually it's a very, uh, you know, core component of, of human beings and how we process information. So I, I don't want to, you know, sound like we're, we're, we're targeting the, the, the judges in that they're not, they're, they're somehow superhuman or, you know, possess those kinds of things. Sure. But we do see that. And, and we see bad practice, uh, you know, from the evaluation side of things. And, you know, I won't comment on the particular, particulars of this case, the caller's case, but um, there's good psychologists and there's bad psychologists. And uh, yeah. there's some that are very in tune to, uh, conflict within uh, the, the, the couple and domestic violence issues and, and, and whatnot, uh, and then there's others that just uh, that are not as aware and savvy in that area. So I hear your frustration for sure, though.
3: Can yeah. Can you answer think, this though? Can I? I'm sorry, I don't mean to sure, interrupt, but ahead. on on the same point, then do you have an an opinion about um, how can that be submitted to the court? There's no testimony from this evaluator. It's just. Um, 28 whatever pages it is, he he actually evaluated both parents and this was a paid by the Department of Human Services. So the court paid for this evaluation. It, it's um, all the actors involved or paid by, you know, the court um there was no independent evaluators or anyone overseeing this so everyone had this report in front of them and it went to the other evaluator who is also like i said paid for by the court and it's called a core provider uh these these actors are so so how i mean how can a judge really rely on that information and really make a sound judgment
0: well, that, uh, yeah, there's just not ne- nearly enough information for me to be able to even speculate on that. I, You know, I would need to know much, much, much more, and uh, I just don't feel yeah. comfortable diving into the, 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 the specifics of your case, so I apologize.
2: Yeah, and I think that um, I, I appreciate the fix you're in, caller, because I hear it all the time uh, from women, and I just deeply, deeply sympathize, and I wish that I could snap my fingers and well, fix Well, no one's the thinking
3: about and, and I appreciate that, but it, when it comes down to it, it's not about, my distress and my problems are or you know it's the children the children are lost of course. in this and of course. you know it's it's just no one's thinking about the children it's about what's easy for the court in my opinion and to just stick with a the theory of the case and just ride it out until the end and children are being lost you know to good parents yeah. and
2: i absolutely agree with you caller and i think that um one of the things that frustrates me so much is what I call the divorce industry, the guardian's ad litem, the psychologist, because yes. you can shop for those. You know, for everyone you find saying the father's a better parent, you can find one saying the mother is a better parent. Right.
3: Well, and the father, and, you know, obviously has the higher income. I mean, I was, you know, sure. no income. And, yeah, so so exactly what you're saying, shop for, you know, um, yeah, the person in a better uh, advantage, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I.
2: Yeah, it, and and, uh, and I'm you. not just uh, blowing you off. And I say I wish I could snap my fingers and make it better for you. My heart actually, you know, I mean, my heart really bleeds for cases like yours, um, because it seems like once a decision is made, they're going to stick with that decision. You know, even mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. uh, bring up new evidence, and even if you bring up mm-hmm. you know new points, um, it's very very tough to get yes. a court change its mind about uh, a decision that's been made in my experience
3: and it's Um, a perfect setup for one parent to use the court as a weapon against the other parent i mean it's a beautiful setup for that when someone knows how to play the system and manipulate and you know like you said there's Mm -hmm. websites you know father's rights websites or whatever how to make the mother you know um you know how to make allegations of mental illness and etc and and uh yeah it it definitely uh is working through the cart, so
2: yeah yeah all i can advise okay. you from my you know layperson's uh view is find other moms like you they're not hard to find and get mm-hmm. as much support as you can from them um because that's it's probably the the most difficult thing in the world for a mother to lose her children um so um you know i I'm, I'm not Just I, practice, I wish we could I go up to problems. law
3: school basically is what you have to do <laughs> That's yes kind exactly of what It turns and, out you know to I've you talked have to with, be your own attorney, so
2: yeah, and I've talked with plenty of women who have gone on to law school.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I think about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, we had a guest on our show who actually was raped, had a baby as a product of that rape as a result of that rape, and then was shocked to find out that the father even though he was a rapist and in jail, had rights to to decision-making to that child, had rights to see the child. So she went on to um, court, or she went on to school. She got her law degree, and she got her child. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a tough battle, but hang in there. Thank you so much for calling. Um, I appreciate your, your being with us thanks sean that's a tough tough call and unfortunately i hear that a lot oh you know what i think i just hung up on sean boy i am terrible this morning sean please call back um i hope i didn't hang up on you before i hope i wasn't the reason that we lost our connection but well sean's calling back i have to say how many women i hear of who are in the same situation as the caller and It seems like I've spoken with judges, I've spoken with judges who who really um, believe that they understand the situation uh, in a domestic violence case especially, and um, I don't see that they really do. Um, I, I just don't see that they really do. Here we go. Sean, that was my fault. I hit the wrong button, so <laughs> I apologize for that. Not a worry. <laughs> Not I, was a just, worry. I, I was just saying that I, I, unfortunately, have heard so many cases like that of sure. the caller. So sure. um, and there's there's no solution that we have unless we can keep going with the prep, tra- track that you're on of trying to train these judges. Correct. Um And NF, the ancillary yes. personnel.
0: Yes. Absolutely, and that's that is why uh, the the organization that I work for, the, the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, and other organizations like the National Judicial College, and others, um, are are around. We we understand that in our system, uh, judges oftentimes can uh, you know literally walk away from uh, being a prosecutor one day and being on the bench the next day, or defense counsel, and there's really no judge. School, you know, so to speak. So that's why we were created. Yeah. We've been around since 1937, and that's what we do: is we train judges, uh, and we train them on best practice, recommended practice. And uh, I'm sure all the stories that you hear, those are the things that we work with the judges so to prevent those things from happening.
2: Yeah, it almost seems again to me as a layperson, it almost seems like um, judges hold the right to parent to a, a, a higher as more important than the safety of a child. And I'm not a professional but I'm just saying that's the way it looks to me sometimes.
0: Yeah, and I you know I have to confess that there's a there's a uh, a selection bias that I'm exposed to. That I would t- typically, the judges that come to us and the courts that we work with are those on the cutting edge, progressive courts and progressive judges. And I don't use that term as an, av- you know, uh, advocate judges or that kind of thing. That that they they are you're not truly politically you're talking... interested. In... What's that?
2: I, you're not talking politically when you say progressive. You're talking. No 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 no. Uh, exactly.
0: That's exactly. That yeah. they are just truly interested in being on the cutting edge of science and of good practice. And, and so, because of that selection bias, I tend to see those courts where, um, you know, the well-being of the child is first and foremost. That's the, that is the very core of the decision-making process.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh you know we we had a, a very good study here in Seattle at uh, University of Washington um several years ago and the study was uh the the premise of the study was could um batterers improve could abusers improve um on an, on a voluntary basis and so they sent out uh, notices they got uh batterers self admi- uh, self uh, admitted abusers uh-huh. to join their program and they had wonderful results in how uh, how um, improved the batterers or the abusers were after their program. But I, I know one of the women who was in, uh, instrumental in this study and I kept saying, but you're getting a very, very tiny group. You're getting a group who admits that they have a problem. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Most abusers do not think they have a problem. It's the other person who has the problem. So by working with this particular group, you know, you kind of had things stacked in your favor. Uh, And Mm -hmm. it sounds like it might be kind of the same way with your progressive judges. These are judges who already know that there's a problem, and Mm -hmm. they're seeking Mm -hmm. some solutions to them. But we've got all of those judges out there who don't acknowledge that there's a problem. And is there any way... Go ahead, Sean.
0: Oh, no, what I was going to say is that's correct. I mean, there's always going to be, no matter what the issue or what the unit of analysis or the population you're discussing, that that's going to be the case. And there's also the issue, too, Heather, that the, the, the bench rotates, that oftentimes that we'll get folks on the bench that really, really get these issues. And because of the way the jurisdiction operates, they may only be on the bench for two to three years. They're just hitting their stride uh in hearing child abuse and neglect cases for example, and then they may be pulled off the bench and sent to criminal court. And uh that we see this and that's that is that in a lot of ways is really the underlying issue is that um in fact we came out with a recommendation a number of years ago for those that hear juvenile justice cases or delinquency cases, they should be on that bench and hearing only those cases for a minimum of seven years. And if you're gonna do it less than seven years don't bother, right? So it's yeah. that rotational issue that is also – because then if you've got a brand-new judge in there that has maybe never heard child abuse neglect, and it's that mowing the grass just, uh, thing, again, you've got to start all over with that judge. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, it, it seems like I, – I, I've, I've talked with several judges, not a lot, but several, <laughs> and they don't like family court. <laughs> um what, what <laughs> the ones I've talked to they don't like it. They want to rotate out of that as quickly as they can. Um yeah. is have you seen that phenomenon? Is that actually oh, a phenomenon absolutely. or is that just Yeah.
0: Absolutely. In yeah. fact, we hear I mean it's it's in, in a lot of jurisdictions it's the court the the, the least favorite court uh, that you would be assigned to. And we even, you know, look at how they term it. It's kitty court or juvie. You know, um, yep. it's not a very high status court in the eyes of, of many judges and systems. Um, but on the flip side of that coin is there are judges that are drawn to that work in a very, very major way. And our position is that these courts should be the most important high status courts there are. Um, it shouldn't be criminal. Absolutely. It shouldn't be bankruptcy. They need to be the, the goal of a career and. Fortunately, there are jurisdictions that, you know, these folks can get in and they can stay on this bench, and it's their life's work, and it's their passion. And that's where we see really, really good practice, and we see leaders that go out and teach other judges and say, you know, for lack of a better term, you can do better, and here's how to do it. Uh, So I think it's a a, a system that is constantly in need of reform, but I want to make certain that uh, listeners uh, understand that it's not, total doom and gloom out there that we have we do have really really good judges in courts in this country
2: Okay, we have one more caller here and I haven't even given out our phone number yet if you would like to call in with a question um, as Sean pointed out before we, he's really not able to answer personal questions he can answer questions about the courts in general um, but uh, unfortunately you know he, he just isn't equipped to do it for a personal situation if you'd like to call in though with a general question the phone number is 646 646- Three seven eight zero four three zero. 378 430 That's 646-378-0430. And caller, are you with us? Are you with us, caller? Well, I guess caller's not with us. Um, Sean, it seems to me that... um, We lost our caller there. It seems to me that... um, are, are, are general, is the general public concerned about what's happening in family court, or is it only those people who are, are intimately exposed to what's happening that care?
0: Well, that's an interesting question because if you think about family court writ large, so let's just involve, uh, uh, for the sake of this this question, you know, juvenile and family courts. So everything from abuse, neglect, to juvenile justice, to uh, domestic violence, divorce, custody, you know, writ large, everything that touches on family. Everybody that we know, know, the chances are you know many, many people that have touched some part of that system, right? Um, oh yeah. Divorces high rate. I mean, we we uh, we all have our experiences, good, bad, or otherwise, with with these courts and touch on them. So I think in the in the in the larger uh, answer to that question, I think that people are concerned, and I think that people want to feel that when they touch the system, or their friends, or their children touch the system, that there's a sense of justice, uh, procedural fairness, that they get their say, their day in court. Uh, so i think uh, I think the the, the the largest answer there is yes, I think people are concerned now you know if you 're not immediate, immediately touching the court, uh, the court and uh, um, you know you somehow don 't have friends that are perhaps you 're not as concerned but uh, um, yeah, I think they are concerned, and I think that there 's a real lack of general understanding about how juvenile and family courts actually
2: work you know when I make uh, do um, talks in front of groups, Sean, I always say that. We tend to think of the courts as a place to go to get justice.
1: Uh-huh. It's
2: not a place to go to get justice. It's a place you uh-huh. go to uh, have the laws interpreted. It's a uh-huh. place you go um, that will make decisions based on written and, and you know uh, precedent law. And it doesn't. If it if it is a just decision, so much the better. But that's not the priority. Justice Mm -hmm. is not the priority, and I don't mean that as, you know, bad, bad courts. That's the way Mm -hmm. courts are designed. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think so often, especially in abusive cases, people think, oh, yes, if I go to court, then somebody will see. Somebody will will help me here. And Mm -hmm. then it's such a shock to find out that, wait a minute, you may be facing even more uh, difficulties in in having someone understand your situation than you had before. Uh, Have you seen that?
0: Absolutely, and, and I often talk uh, when i when I uh, do presentations on on trauma um, I, I I make the note that courts themselves are traumatizing. Um, these aren't you know most people don't take their two weeks of annual leave and vacation and go visit a court for fun, right? I mean, they're not some cases <laughs> that have a whole lot of good things going on in them for the most part. I mean, there are some exceptions, you know obviously marriages and adoptions. those are very, very positive, but the vast majority of what's going on in courts is a pretty negative. You know, uh, toxic situation, and it's stressful on people. Uh, and uh, I always, you know, say the best solution. You know, people will come and ask me, particularly my background with with working in juvenile justice, is, well, what's your what's your biggest advice for dealing with the juvenile justice system? And I say, don't get involved with the juvenile justice system. It it in of it itself will suck you in and chew you up and spit you out. Um, and that's a lot of the work that we do too, is to help courts recognize uh, and do whatever they can to be a little kinder and gentler in the treatment of the children and families that come before them because they are very, very stressed out individuals.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll bet they are. Um, Yeah. The other thing that I was thinking is do judges – I guess maybe that's a personality question and an individual question – but do judges – understand the root, the true impact of those decisions that they're making. I mean, I get I don't know whether that's a stupid question or not, but I, you know, I've met as I said several judges. I've spoken to several judges and it's like, well, that's, you know, they they feel very solid that their their judgment was based on the law and that's good and they did their job and yeah, not everybody's happy with their job, but they did it. Um yeah. yeah. And I, of course, maybe that's why they're judges. I would always kind of go, "Could I've done that better? Should I?" Have? <laughs>
0: the judges, I uh, again, it's the selection bias, and I uh, that, that you know I'm working with a certain group of judges, but I think that they they very much have a lot of, of angst and worry about um, you know the impact of their their decisions, and um, oftentimes um, you know we've we've had cases, unfortunate cases, where judges have returned a child to. A home, or uh, put the child into foster care, and for whatever reason, the, the child winds up getting hurt or even killed, and just devastating judges. I mean, uh, realizing that their decision, they couldn't obviously have a, a crystal ball, but yeah, very, these are these are very very human human beings, and uh, yeah, they are paid to to make a decision within the, the the letter of the law, make the best decision with the evidence that's presented to them. Uh, But I think, again, most of the judges I work with uh, really do take that seriously, and they really are concerned about outcomes for children, youth, and family beyond the decision.
2: Okay. Uh, We have another caller, Sean. Caller, are you with us? Good. Um, Thank you for – well, wait a minute. Did you just drop off, caller? Yeah. I don't know what the problem is with our board today, Sean. It seems like we're dropping people left and right. Um yeah. hopefully that caller will, will get back to us. So what is your organization actually doing hands-on to try to address this issue?
0: Sure, absolutely. You mentioned that you so, – so, yeah, we approach it for, uh, at four different levels. We do obviously you know the the training component we will hold institutes here at the university, but we also travel all over the country uh, and do national conferences, regional conferences, statewide trainings, those sort of things for judges and, and allied court personnel so there's the education component, which is critical uh, the other piece yeah. the other three include technical assistance and we provide technical assistance in two ways uh, it can be office-based which means that judges and courts can call us and they may have a question about a topic and say could you do some research on this and tell us what best practice might look like uh, i'll give you an example there uh, recently we had a phone call from a state uh, court system that was trying to develop uh, an argument uh, for not shackling kids in court delinquent kids huh. in court so we were very easily able to generate a position paper and the research that supported not doing that that it was bad practice uh... and eventually that court that jurisdiction no longer now because of that no longer shackles kids in court yay victory a win right um... we also do on-site yeah and then we do on-site technical assistance where we literally hop on a plane and we'll go out to a court and we'll spend time with them observing practice uh... doing action planning strategic planning with them on an issue to improve practice in a given area so um that could be for example um, having time certain calendaring and what that means is instead of a family coming to wait in court for kind of that cattle call and they may be sitting there all day not really knowing if at some point you know mm-hmm. they get called in it's you're you're going to be seen between eight and eight fifteen that's your hearing time and then helping courts think through well how do you do that with all the the variance that you have in, in hearing types and whatnot. So, technical assistance. We also do research. Uh, we do research on our own work. Uh, so we have an internal evaluation unit, and then we actually have a, a, a large research division in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that does uh, tracking of all the data from juvenile courts all over the country. They actually do it for the Department of Justice and make it public, uh, so we can look at trends over time of what juvenile crime, for example, looks like and which states. Um, how they're handling things, um, what their statutes are around age of jurisdiction. So it's that more macro level data. So research to help inform the field, help inform what best practice and recommended practice are. And then lastly, uh, we try to do this institute reform uh, by using our judges, our member judges, uh, to influence policy, and policy at state level, local level, and even the national level, that we will go back and do briefings on the Hill uh, We did one this last year on actually kind of tangent, kind of what we're talking about today about trauma-informed systems of care, and why courts are so important to be a part of that. Um, And uh, so, yeah, that's the the big four: policy, uh, research, training, and technical assistance.
2: Yeah, but it has to be by invitation. You have to be invited to do this. There's there's no mandatory training that you're aware of.
0: There's well, there are certain. for the most part, you're right, but there are certain states, and actually Nevada, where we're located, is one of them. It is written into statute that new judges must attend our new judge institute within a year of being on the bench. So there are oh. those kinds of things out there that actually say you you will go take advantage of this. So um, we have we have no shortage <laughs> of uh, consumers, for lack of a better term, um, you know, people are pretty hungry uh, at the administrative office of the courts in various states to have their judges trained, and quite often we'll send, pay and send the judges to come to our trainings.
2: Wonderful. Um, and yeah. you said that the research that you do is uh, uh, available to the public but through the Department of Justice.
0: The uh, statistics uh, through, uh, is available through the, the, to the public actually through the, uh, our center's website. Uh, and it's very simply it's the National Center for Juvenile Justice. And their website is www.ncjj.org. And there's a wealth, wealth of statistics regarding juvenile courts. Um, and the public is welcome to go take a look.
2: Wonderful, and you know, if you if you are in one of these situations, you know, these really unfortunate situations, maybe going Mm -hmm. to one of those to that website, and doing some research will be helpful to you. Um, Mm -hmm. The other thing that I was thinking of, uh, Sean, is, do you work hand in hand with any other organizations?
0: We do. Uh, In fact, we have a pretty robust network of like-minded organizations. Uh, that help us in this work, so we 're primarily focused on the judges and the courts, but um, obviously a court operates and includes public defenders and prosecutors and social workers, probation officers, so we oftentimes work with those organizations that serve those uh, members or those consumers uh, to make sure that our training is, is well integrated, that everybody 's getting the same message um, so organizations like the American Bar Association um, we are really really uh, work close with uh, the National Child Traumatic Stress Network out of Duke and UCLA, uh, and really thinking through again this idea of trauma-informed systems of care and how the court fits into that. So, um, yeah, we have we have uh, a, a pretty extensive list of partners uh, and very good friends of ours that we work with to, to to do this reform efforts.
2: Great. How are you funded?
0: We are funded about at this year about sixty to sixty-five percent is federal funding through places like uh, Department of Justice or uh, specifically Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. Uh, There's uh, Health and Human Service money. So again, about 65% or so is federal. The remainder is uh, primarily private foundations, uh, philanthropic organizations that are interested in seeing court reform work done, and then uh, donations from members, membership dues, things like that.
2: Um, And if somebody's interested in um, donating to your organization, they can go to your web page?
0: Go to the front web page, and right at the very front, there's a button uh, that uh, would walk you right through that process.
2: Okay. All right. So, excuse me, do you have any kind of organization, or do you know of any kind of organization that works directly uh, with people who are distressed with um, a family court decision?
0: You know, I I, I don't, um, and that's one of the things that it's, it's it's hard for people not doing the work that we're doing or familiar with the work we're doing is that we don't do direct service work, and most of the organizations that we work with don't. We really are focused on the system itself uh, and system reform. So for the most part, we don't get involved, and our partners don't get involved in, in in that level. Now that said, I know there's organizations out there that do that sort of work, but I'm just not, it's just not my area of familiarity. Sure.
2: I just thought I'd throw that out there. Sure. Um, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. So um, we've got this organization started back in the 30s. It's all mm-hmm. about uh, teaching best practices, discovering and teaching best practices to mm-hmm. uh, courts. And it sounds like a great idea. How come not a lot of people know about it, I wonder?
0: That's a, that's a, a question we always po- we ponder on a daily basis. <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> It, yeah, it's a it's a tough one, and we're not really sure why there's that dynamic. Um, it, it could be uh, just simply that you know in in the world or the, the the constellation of all the different kinds of jobs out there that the judges represent a fairly small group. Um, it just may be that that you know a factor of that or a dynamic of that. Um, you know, but we certainly do our best to get out there and get the word out there. Uh, it's it's a, sl- a long slow process though.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like, I, I think with typical of most issues, unless it's hitting you, it doesn't really Correct. exist yet. You, you don't know that there's actually a problem until you step in it. Um, That's right. And then, you know, it's a little little late to be going around to trying to learn about it or trying to teach about it. Um, Correct. So, you know, I, I, again, my heart goes out to these people in family court who have been so blasted uh, by that system. And I also, as a, uh, you know, I think I told you, Sean, I'm working on my Ph.D. in psychology, sure. and, you know, as a future psychologist, I'm also distressed uh, greatly by uh, some of those ancillary People that hang around family court that, that get a living from family court, and just like with the judges, I'm sure there are a lot who are doing it to mm-hmm. help, to be helpful, to you mm-hmm. know, um, to to really uh, uh, work with the system. But I think that there's also a number, and I've met some um, who this is a good living. Will do this,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. and um, I'm not sure that they really understand the depth. of of what they're doing, the the impact of what they're doing. Do you do anything with those ancillary people or with, for example, the American Psychological Association? Do you, you know, is there anything that your organization does with um, other types of organizations?
0: Sure. Yes, and actually the American Psychological Association is a good partner of ours um, in doing judicial training and and on decision-making and and whatnot. And the things that we do to – so – I should back up and say that one of our, our kind of fundamental core beliefs is that the judge, a judge, a well-trained judge, a broadly competent judge, is in an extraordinary position to, to affect change. And the reason we say that is because if a judge calls a meeting, people show up. <laughs> it's just yeah. the way it works. So we leverage judicial leadership in a big way, and we encourage judges to get <laughs> off the bench and to be in the communities and to convene and to serve that role because of a very unique uh, uh, position of power and, and authority. Um, so when we are working with the APA or others uh, and, and, and talking to judges about, let's just use the assessment and evaluation uh, example, we want them to understand, what exactly is an assessment versus an evaluation versus a screening? When is it appropriate to order this? It's not appropriate to evaluate everybody that comes through the door, right? There has to be some reason that you need this evaluation because an evaluation is invasive and it's, you know, it's it can un, 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 uh... you know, very personal information and then it's documented and then it's in the file. Well, is it really necessary and is it on point for what's happening in this particular case? So those are the kinds of things that we really want our judges to do. That's much easier to have a judge not order an evaluation versus trying sure. to go to an evaluator and convince them uh, again in some cases that you don't need to do an evaluation on everybody coming through when that's how they earn a living. right? We would rather have the judge just not order the evaluation yeah. if it's not needed
2: yeah yeah and uh. But I find that and again, this is my personal opinion. I certainly sure. uh, am not qualified to you know speak professionally on this issue, but it seems to me that a lot of judges um, are kind of vested in their own um, impartiality, in other words, that they they think they think that they're really, really impartial because that's what judges are expected to be, but in mm-hmm. fact. None of us is really impartial. We all rely nope. on our past experiences and our past, you know, um, you know who we are and all of that kind of stuff. Whenever we make a decision, even if it's on how to buy groceries, you know, on buying groceries. Correct. So, um, how do you work? Well, again, we we kind of guess covered this. Where you know, if the judge doesn't see there's a problem, the judge isn't going to ask for help.
0: Correct. And one of the, one, so, and I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. One of the things that we we do with our judges and the judges that come to our trainings is we have a whole kind of line of training around this idea of impartiality and bias and i walk them through as a psychologist i walk them through how the human brain has evolved to take in process store retrieve and act on information and i talk a lot about implicit bias or bias that they're not even aware that they have and the whole line of research around that and walk them through and part of that is we know being aware of implicit biases or that this is how the brain operates can help correct or at least help you self-monitor to not let those biases impact your decisions as much. So, um, again, it comes down to a lot of training and and exposing judges to some information that for the most part many of them have never heard of.
2: Mm -mm. Um, It would seem to me that there should be requirements each state, Mm -hmm. each county, having a requirement uh, for certain levels of training for judges on issues like domestic violence, on issues like um, um, impartiality. It it seems to me like there should be requirements. Is that a general rule? Are there requirements? I know continuing education is is required for physicians and lawyers. Mm -hmm. What about judges?
0: Continuing at yes. Uh, now the specifics of what that might involve, in other words, is it mandated they take a course in domestic violence? That's less likely to be, uh, you know, the case. So, in a, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, then they're self-selecting those areas of interest. So we've we've run into judges in the past that you know have not had any domestic violence training, and they've been judged for 15, 20 years. Um, I think that that is changing. I think that. Um, people are much more aware in the field that it's critical we have broadly competent judges so we want all our judges to know about domestic violence about substance abuse about trauma not just the law not just calling balls and strikes but really understanding these themes that run throughout the cases uh... no matter what court you're touching and the themes are pretty consistent right there it's the trauma injury uh... domestic violence substance abuse education issues all those things kind of run throughout. Those are the things we really, really want our judges to be on top of.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, when we're dealing with a court, what what is the... What recourse, for for example, with our caller, what recourse does she have when uh, a decision has been made based on um, information that may or may not be faulty, but what recourse? I mean, you you can appeal, but the appellate court Mm -hmm. is only looking at did they follow the letter of the law. They're not looking at Mm -hmm. did they make the right decision, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that costs Mm -hmm. lots of money. So mm-hmm. I've mm-hmm. heard about groups um, uh, picketing courts. I've heard about groups starting court watch um, groups and, and uh, mm-hmm. um, writing reports about particular judges. But what mm-hmm. can a person really do if they're in a situation like our first caller?
0: Yeah. And it's, ironically, I work with courts, but I'm not a legal scholar or expert at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the actual uh, remedies available, I, I, I'm not, uh, again, other than an okay. appeal uh, you know uh, i I, w- I wouldn't be able to comment on um, but uh, there's th- the other thing too is is there's in many states and many jurisdictions there's there's elements to the public be able to weigh in on judicial performance so uh, you know, that would be an active citizen, that when those opportunities come up to uh, respond to surveys about your experience with the court or your experience with a particular judge uh, that's up for retention, that you exercise that uh, right of being a citizen to comment and put out there. Now, that seems like a, a minor thing, but I think it's, you know, part of uh, our, our due uh, in being good citizens. Yeah.
2: Sean, what got you into this work?
0: I got into this work uh, through direct service. I uh, actually taught high school for a number of years and wound up working with uh, at-risk youth, kind of moved into working in the juvenile justice field, uh, doing clinical work eventually. I worked with uh, sex offenders and very very violent uh, offenders, uh, children, youth, uh, adolescents, and after a period of time kind of burnt out a bit on direct service and went more into the uh, research and uh, system reform level of work. So, been with the council uh, since early 2002. So,
2: that's how I got where so I am. So you have, you have a background from the ground up. Correct. So many judges don't. They don't really have experience. It's kind of like, you know, the, the 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 factory manager who comes in and he's had no experience, but he's got his MBA, and he doesn't yeah. know anything about actually producing a widget. Mhm. Mm-hmm. That makes a difference. Yeah. That makes d- a difference if you actually know the process and know what it's like to be on that assembly line. Yes. How many judges or are there any requirements for judges to work the assembly line a little bit before they start adjudicating?
0: Well, well, if you if you consider the assembly line, well, most come obviously come to being a judge directly from being an attorney in some way, either a public defender or a prosecutor or doing bankruptcy law or whatever the case. That's the vast majority. So if you consider that as having done some time, you, know, then well you know, that's probably a pretty good training ground, but I think what you're getting at is how many of these judges were teachers for 10 years before they went to law school, or how many of these folks worked in mm-hmm. mental health and then went to law school and became a judge eventually, exactly. those kinds of things. Those numbers are, are much, much less. They do exist. We do work with judges that had a career before becoming an attorney and a judge, and they understand children um, in a very, I don't want to say different way, but a more nuanced way perhaps because they were in a classroom for 15 years, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Um, and in order to be a judge, what, what is the requirement? I know some states, I think, unless they've changed it, Washington, my state, is like this, too. You actually don't have to have a law degree to be a lawyer. If you pass the bar, then, you're, or, you know, the bar exam, you can be a lawyer. Um, Correct. Of course, that's pretty impractical for people who haven't been to law school. Um, but, Correct. you know, it, what are the requirements you judge, generally? Yeah, speaking? Well, you
0: po- yeah generally speaking, uh, typically a law degree or you pass the bar in some jurisdictions, like you pointed out. Um, and then, really, it depends on the state and it depends on the jurisdiction. There's two avenues. You're either appointed or you're elected, and those are the two ways in. And um, there's no hardcore set criteria that you have to have had practice X number of years, uh, those kinds of uh, those kinds of things. I think in, in reality that most that get appointed or elected to the bench have a pretty substantial uh, record of working in the legal field, at least, so but no, no no hard hard line requirements at least not not at a national level for sure
2: Wow. um yeah. and of course each jurisdiction has its own you know um requirements, or or can have its own requirements, so it's difficult to answer that as a general question. I understand that. Um, Okay, so we're dealing with uh, folks who are experiencing some pretty grim things uh, as a result Uh of going to court, and they're feeling pretty hopeless. Are you aware of any place where they can turn? Getting a free lawyer is pretty Almost impossible, there are some right. you know wonderful attorneys who give a certain amount of their time uh pro bono, but for the most part, if you don't have an attorney, you're representing yourself, and you know mm-hmm. what is that mm-hmm. famous thing about if you know a lawyer who has himself for a client has a idiot for a judge or whatever yeah, I don't know what it is <laughs> right. but you know what yeah. I'm saying um yeah. so you know where, if if you were in this situation, and I'm asking you a question. You probably really are not prepared to answer, but if you could give it your best yeah. shot for me, okay. where would you
0: right.
2: advise these people to go? These these women to go?
0: Yeah, I think that uh, if if I were in that circumstance, one is I, I would have a voracious appetite for information. I would I would launch myself down a trajectory of learning everything I could possibly learn about the issues touching my case, about courts, about the law. And, and become the expert on my case, uh, now, uh, to do that uh, in, a, in a little more efficient way uh, outside of having an attorney, your point about uh, attorneys cost money for the most part is your suggestion to the first caller is to find others that have had a similar experience and find that support group that support network and uh, together, you know folks are much stronger. And can exchange information and learn much more quickly uh, than somebody going it alone. But I, I think ultimately, outside of having a whole lot of resources, um, that's that's the angle that I would take. Learn everything I can.
2: Okay. All right. Um, when we look at judges, we tend mm-hmm. to put them on a higher plane until mm-hmm. we get a decision that is really offensive. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What impact does the general public have? Okay, we've we've got somebody who who may find a group of, of people who are experiencing the same kinds of things. What impact can the public have on a judge and on a judge's decisions? Right. I think well, specifically, public... Sean. Of, of, um, oh, there have been cases where uh, I'm thinking of this Montana judge who, in the rape case, gave the uh, former teacher who admittedly raped his his 14 year old student, gave him one day in jail or 30 days in jail and plus, uh, you know, for time served, and the guy spent one night, you know, extra in jail, and that was it, even though he admitted to raping, and the judge said something to the effect of, "Well, the girl." Uh, was just as responsible as the teacher, um, mm-hmm. and of course the girl had committed suicide a couple of years before that mm-hmm. promoted such outrage mm-hmm. that um, they actually the, the, that particular judge was sanctioned, and he also says that he 's going to retire in December when his term is up. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. impact can the public have on judges mm mm-hmm. I
0: think uh, you know in, in that case being number one vocal um and, and taking the stance that there's there's outrage and generating press and you know keeping it uh, a focus on what what happened or what's going on um, I think that again, when there's opportunities to come on comment on judicial performance, whether they're again surveys or those sort of things, that as a citizen you should participate in that. And then I think there's another avenue that's oftentimes overlooked. And uh, our position, the National Council's position, is uh, the press is a good thing. The press serves uh, a role in monitoring the performance of the courts, and we see that in practice by. Uh, uh, recommending to judges that in cases uh, that they pre- are presumed to be open to the public and they're presumed to be open to the press, unless there is some sort of cogent argument that someone can make that having the press there or the public there would somehow damage uh, children, youth, or families. Uh, so we we promote open courts because we think that promotes this accountability that, that I think you're trying to uh, trying to. And shed some light on. Um, it, it's a good thing to have <laughs> information on what's going on inside the courts made public.
2: And the fact is that you, anybody, if you are at your your local courthouse, um, most of these uh, trials, you can just walk in and be an observer. You Correct. can just look in the court and see what's going on and what that judge is doing, and that's the whole idea behind that court watch system that I was mentioning earlier, where um, right. people with a group or even as individuals can go in and observe how a judge operates and Correct. then report it to whomever Correct. you know they, they want to share that with. And um, I think that that's a good thing myself. I really do. I'd Although, agree. I must say, I read an article by a judge i can't remember where she was, but um she was saying how that this this public um scrutiny of judges is risking the impartiality of judges hmm. that yeah, which was an interesting take, and you know my of course, my gut reaction to reading that was well, that's too bad, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, yeah <laughs> but then i'm not a, known for being terrifically sympathetic um <laughs> but there is that point that you know. At what mm-hmm. point does popular outrage put at risk that judicial impartiality that we all, um, right. fa- you know, we're we're all in favor of that. We're all very supportive of judicial impartiality.
0: Right, right.
2: And I think it's it's
0: the yeah, it's it's really interesting, and it's it's got to just be co- the constant part of the conversation because that's how we keep it on our forefront of constantly reminding ourselves, number one, this is a really difficult system. This is not a smooth system. And then you have judges. That's a tough job. And then you have, you know, it's just constant, constant, constant revisiting those nuances is, is just critical.
2: Yeah, it is. It is. And I'm with you, Sean. I think that the the more fresh air and, and light that falls upon something, the better. Um, although, you know, I, my undergrad degree is in journalism, and I worked as a journalist for a long time. And I do have to say that most people have a gut reaction to something without really knowing all the ins and outs, all the information. Correct. I think we, Correct. as an American culture, tend to do that a lot. And if that's yep. the case, and you're, you're you know, going after a judge when you don't really understand, when you just um, have an idea that something is is wrong or is outrageous, um, can be pretty damaging. So I don't know That's, where you walk that line.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's it, it, it is tough, and there's there's, you know, the judge is in a, in a very unique position in that. You know, there's, they may not have information that we think they have because of the rules of evidence or the rules of disclosure. Or, you know, they, or they may have stuff that has been inadvertently introduced and now they have to ignore it. I mean, it, these are tough things. So I think it's always good to be to be cautiously critical. And when we see decisions that don't make a lot of sense, and when we see performance on the bench, that again, this is a difficult job. And you're dead on right that we we often make our own gut snap judgments without. Mm-hmm. Sufficient information. So we we have to be cautious. We have to be cautious.
2: Yeah, um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, Sean, um, called Why Doesn't She Just Leave? Available on Amazon. Um, <laughs> 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 it's a shameless self-promotion there. Um, but Perfect. one of the one of the stories in our book is about a woman who did lose custody of her children, and that's happening so often. And you know, it was just so um, heart wrenching. Mm Heart-wrenching. And then she was Mm -hmm. left to just view how this person who had been her abuser was left to raise her child. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. it became so much for her that she did eventually um, commit suicide over it because it was just too much for her to handle. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
2: So I think that the idea that these decisions are just, you know, they impact so many lives. And I would hope that every judge out there, understands that um, and, mm-hmm. and that responsibility heavily. I think they should take that responsibility heavily. Sean, Correct. I so appreciate your being on our show. Um, you've, you've really helped me understand the system, and you've also given me a little hope that there's at least somebody out there trying to make it better. So thank you. And, again, Sean said all their research is available on their website, which is, Sean?
0: Website, www.ncjf cj.org. It's the acronym for the okay. National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges.
2: Okay, great. And i like to end our show with a quote, and today I have a quote from uh, Judge Brian Lindsay. He was a retired Supreme Court judge from New York. There is no system ever devised by mankind that is guaranteed to rip husband and wife or father and mother and child apart so bitterly than our present family court system. And I think that kind of sums it up. so so. again thank you for being with us I hope that you gained some information from our show today don't forget that you can always access the show on archive and if you've missed a previous show you can go to the archive at www.blogtalk.com slash three women three ways and that's the digit three not the word three so thank you for joining us please join us again next week and cover another topic of uh, interest to all of us thank you